Let's begin by uh, talking to the Lord some more. And Lord, um, thank you that we can be here and, and worship together today. And I pray that you would uh, expose our hearts to, our, to ourselves. Um, we want to worship you in spirit and in truth. We want to be honest and open before you. We don't want to, today we don't want to think about other people's problems, other people's sins, other people's needs. We really want to think about our own so that we can be in a position to help other people. We want to be honest and open and, and um, we realize that we live in a world that's continually systems that would seduce us to death and uh, would cause us to be unfaithful to you and disloyal to you. And, and even this week, I'm sure that we've committed many disloyal acts and we've said disloyal things and we, we honestly confess how we need the power of your Holy Spirit, the, the righteousness of Christ to save us, the power of the Holy Spirit to sanctify us. And as we study the Word today, I, I pray that from the, from the truth in your Word that you would um, stir up every one of us to a most holy life. Amen. So a friend of mine wrote a book, and in the book, he said this. Was a, you ever get like somebody hit you with a taser in the face? That's how I felt when I read this passage, like somebody hit me with a taser in the face. God warns that we have the capacity to hide wrong desires in our heart, to tuck them away in cracks and crevices and behind false panels and hidden doors secretly hoping that we may one day pull them out and fulfill them, these wrong desires. And Satan, perhaps knowing where they're hidden, often provides perfect opportunities for us to do just that. People may be shocked when we fall for some illicit desire that seems so out of character. But, and we, we too may grieve over the consequences of our own actions, and yet it is the very thing that we secretly wanted to do all along. The desire was embedded in our hearts, privately, covertly coddled and nourished for years, waiting opportunity, and Satan and demons can provide those opportunities for us. Imagine a young father. He's a uh, husband and father, and he's on the road. His business takes him on the road, and he's in a hotel. He's working late, and so he misses his meal, and the restaurant is closed, but the bar is open. And it's not what he would normally do, but he goes in to get something to eat at the bar, and he's not there very long before a very attractive young woman comes and sits next to him and begins to befriend him and suggest things that he had a secret desire to do. So off he goes to fulfill his secret desire, thinking no one will ever know, and she wasn't interested in him at all, but luring him into a trap where somebody else robs him and takes his life. That's a perfect picture of what Satan would like to do to every one of us. I'm not just talking about sexual immorality. That's, that Satan, whenever he gets us to sin our favorite sin, sinks his talons deeper into us. Our favorite sin may be worry. Every bit as deadly as lust. Our favorite sin may be anger. Our favorite sin may be frustration. Our favorite sin may be a little irritation. Our favorite sin, our pet sin, it might be just that little streak of self-indulgence that we lean into every once in a while. 
It may be that we're often like set aside because we, there are just sins of omission, things that we should have done that we didn't do, or, or sinful silences, times when we should speak up and we don't speak up, or maybe they are sinful words, times when we should be quiet and we speak, or we should say something different than what we say. And so if I'm doing a good job today, I just hit you on something, right? Because the reality is that we all have those sins that they're besetting sins. They're they're the things that we don't know the Lord that are going to drag us into hell. They're the things that if we do know the Lord, they're going to they're going to ravage our lives. They're going to harm our lives. They're going to take us from our sense of fellowship with God. Satan is going to try to seduce us, and it will happen maybe before I'm done talking. It will happen this afternoon. It will happen this week. And for God to show us the reality of that, we have the Bible. The Bible tells us the reality of our, of our adversary, the devil, uh, the tactics that he uses, uh, the, the, the um, plans that he has. The Bible's really clear and, and very concrete about it. In the passage that we're going to study today, in Revelation chapter 17, we're going to see that very clearly, that he not only has a tactic, not only does Satan have a tactic, not only does Satan have weapons of warfare, schemes, the Bible talks about that. He has political he works in political structures. Some of you are like, yeah, amen. You know, like he works in economic structures. But what's interesting is that the passage that we're going to study today, what we see is that he works in religious structures. That not all religion is good religion. Not all churches are good churches. Not all worship is good worship. Satan uses all kinds of things, not just the dishonest person at the bar trying to draw you into your death, but he, but he uses false teachers and a false church. Now, it's interesting because Jesus in his high priestly prayer and in, in, in his, uh, in his uh, conversation with his disciples in the upper room, he said something shocking. You remember this? He said, he, he prayed that they all, he's talking about his disciples, that they all may be one as I and the Father are one. Did, did, that, did that passage... Did that phrase ever shock you? That they all may be one as I and the Father are one. What he's saying there was, I want all my disciples, the ones in the room, and the ones that are going to come after them, to have this spiritual unity that's like the unity that God the Father and God the Son have. That's just shocking. You talk about he wants us to get along. He says, I want you to be as close as God the Father and God the Son with every other follower of Jesus. So there's a command in the Bible for unity. It's very clear. There's a command in the Bible to get along. We're not to like shoot the wounded, no friendly fire, right? That's, the Bible teaches that. But then the Bible also teaches a doctrine that we talk about, like the doctrine of, you ever heard somebody say the doctrine of separation? The Bible also teaches that we're not to be, we are not to participate in any form of evil We're to be separate from it. Jesus in John 17 said that his disciples weren't supposed to be taken out of the world, but they're to be kept from the evil one. Remember that? So he said, we're in the world, but, you know, you've heard this before, in the world, but not of the world. You know, if the the boat's in the water, that's good. If the water's in the boat, that's bad. So what he's saying is, I want you to be one with brothers and sisters in Christ, And I want you to be separate from the practice of evil altogether. How can you make sure what's what and how can you make sure who's who? That's the the question. 
In the Revelation, let's kind of catch up to where we are. In case you weren't here all those Sundays, shame on you. But anyway, here, here, here's let's catch up uh, to where we are. So Revelation chapter 1, in Revelation chapter 1, there is this vision of the Son of Man. And John the Apostle, who is very close to Christ, once he was called the Son of Thunder, by the time he dies, he's the Apostle of Love. And he's the John the Apostle, and he's, on the, he's exiled to the island of Patmos. He sees a vision from God. And in the vision from God in Revelation chapter 1, he sees a vision of the Son of Man. And the rest of what happens, this is a, a, a name for Jesus that comes out of the book of Daniel. It's a vision of the Son of Man. And the rest of the book is keys off the visions that Daniel has of, of heaven and, and the future earth. In chapter 1, he has the vision of the Son of Man. In chapter 2 and chapter 3, there are seven letters to churches. And they are ancient churches, like first century churches in, in modern Turkey. But we, when we taught through them, you could see that, it, that every one of the lessons to the churches applied to Evangel Baptist Church, right? In chapter 4 and in chapter 5, we soar up into the throne room of God. And we see the throne room of God. And God on the throne and the Lamb and the scroll. And there's the worshiping choirs. Remember that? Just a beautiful scene of the throne room of God. And in Revelation, we're either looking on the throne room of God or we're looking on the chaos on earth. We're looking at the worship in heaven or we're looking at the blasphemy on the earth until we get to chapter 19 when Jesus Christ comes and returns to the earth in power and great glory and establishes a 1,000-year literal millennial reign where he sits on the throne of David. And then after that, the eternal state, some other things that happen, but the eternal state or the new heavens and the new earth come together where believers live together in eternal felicity, peace, happiness, amity, unity, joy, glorious, sinless life with God forever. This is what Revelation is going to tell. In between, you have all kinds of interesting symbols to decode, and there are little backtracks that happen. In chapters number 6 through 19, we're studying that today, it's kind of our series, it's kind of a long series, but it's a series, and the series in 6 to 19 covers the great tribulation, or the tribulation, period of time of seven years, the last half often referred to as the great tribulation, and during the tribulation, there are 21 judgments that pour out, and the judgments are flagged in heaven, so John sees something in heaven before each judgment is, 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 comes on the earth, and the first six judgments, you know, they happen when the scroll is unsealed. There's a seal judgment. When the scroll is unsealed, a judgment comes on the earth. And when the seventh seal is, is open, then there are seven more judgments that come out of the seventh seal, which are trumpet judgments. And every once in a while, there's a parenthesis in the text that goes back to show what it's like in heaven. But then it shows how these judgments are poured out on the earth. And then there are the seven bowl judgments that come out of the seventh trumpet judgment. And we just finished talking about those last week. And now we're in, and that was in chapter 16. It was horrifying. It was the very end. Chapter 16 is the very end, the last few hours of the Great Tribulation where this horrifying judgment is poured out on the earth. Now, this is actually going to literally happen on the earth in the future. And the reason we know that is because of the kind of language the Bible uses. It uses language that's never been used before. It actually says things. This is like nothing that has ever happened before and nothing that will ever happen again. And when it says that, it can only happen one time. So it hasn't happened yet. We're still here. So in other words, it's not just history. There are things that are historic but there are things that are huge things that are future and that are prophetic. And that's why this church has always taught, and we believe that Revelation is describing a lot of things that happened, of course, in the past. But much of it is describing things that will happen in the future. Some of them have happened. Most of them haven't happened yet. 
But when you look at the world, you can see that they're about to happen. You can see that they, they're imminent. They could happen at any time. So that brings us to our text today and what's going to happen in chapter 17 and chapter 18. Of course, Jesus, this Armageddon in the first part of chapter 19 and the return of Christ. Can't wait to get to chapter 19. But before that, there are some things that Jesus wanted John to tell the churches. And the churches have passed these along in sacred writ. And you have a copy of that, I hope, in your lap today. And if you don't, you should always bring a copy of the Bible or something on your phone. If you're a phone person, you should always have a copy of the Bible because I'm not just telling my opinion. I'm going to keep pointing you to the Bible over and over. And that's all we do here. We just point people to the Bible. We don't have our own opinions are worthless. God's word is powerful. You, can build your, you can't build your life on my opinions. You wouldn't want to do that. You don't believe me? Just talk with my wife afterwards. She'll tell you that. It's like, don't even think about it. He's, you know, we're just barely keeping him out there. You know, we're just helping him every day, getting him out the door. You don't want my opinions. People come to me for counsel every once in a while because I'm a pastor. I'm like, you don't want me to tell you what I think. I just need to show you what the Bible says. That's what we're doing here. And so we're just like, let's open the Bible. Let's look at what the Bible says. For some reason, God wanted us to read Revelation 17 and Revelation 18. And here's what's in there, okay? Revelation 17 this is really kind of interesting language, uses some of the most provocative, shocking language that people use. It's sexual language. It's like, it talks about a harlot, the great Babylonian harlot, prostitute, whore, um, King James says. It's like shocking language. It talks about, just, that's why I used that illustration early on. It's like, oh, that's, just a, that's a horrible story to tell. That's the, that's the image that God is using to describe false religion. And it's gonna, false religion has always been, from the very early, like chapter 10 of Genesis at least, the Babylonian false religion. That's, we're going to talk about it today in Revelation 17. And it's been all the way from chapter 10 of Genesis. It's the fall, of course, early in Genesis. Then you have this false religion. And the false religion just keeps growing and growing and growing. And when you get to the end, when you get to Revelation, false religion has taken over the world. It's growing. So in chapter 17... Of Revelation, you don't just have a picture of this prostitute, which is symbolic of false religion. You have a picture, listen, of the judgment of the prostitute, the judgment of false religion. That's what chapter 17 is all about the judgment of the false religion of the end time. And you may ask, well, why do I need to know that? I will tell you that. I will be faithful to tell you that. And in chapter 18, you have the, this, this, the, the economic, political, military power of, of this anti-God world system Babylon of which the religious arm that it's talking about in 17 is a part. So chapter 17 and 18 are kind of like when, when the seventh uh, bowl judgment is poured out upon the earth. This is happening about the same time as that. You're kind of backtracking just a little bit. This is just a, a part. So in other words, this is a specific judgment of the, the, the prostitute, which is the, the false religion. So let's take our Bibles now and open them to Revelation 17. And and like we like to do here, let's just read the whole chapter so that we get the heart of it. Hear the word of the Lord, Revelation 17 and verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication." So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and 
ten horns. Remember chapter 13, we were introduced to that beast before. Verse 4. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman, of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not. By the way, I'm sorry. Let me just give you a little commentary from chapter uh, 17, verse 8. I think it's, am I allowed? It's a little humorous. He sees the vision. The angel says, let me explain this to you. And then he explains it, but you really have to have your thinking cap on, right? Did you ever notice that? You're like, oh, good, because I need an explanation. But when he explains it, listen how it sounds. It's, very, it's fairly complex. So you have to, like, some people say, I love to go to church because it's just someplace where I don't have to think. <laughs> you might want to have your thinking cap on today. So track with this, all right? The angel says to me, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Did you get that? Okay, we'll explain that. It's not as hard as it looks. Verse 9. Here's the mind, here is the mind which has wisdom, which is another way of saying, put on your thinking cap. Here's the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And those who are with Him are called and chosen and faithful. Faithful. He said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations and tongues and the ten horns which you saw on the beast these will hate the harlot will make her desolate and naked and eat her flesh and burn her with fire for god has put it in their hearts to fulfill his purpose to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of god are fulfilled and the woman who saw this is the woman you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth okay how would you like to be me right now right and explain that. It sounds complex. It isn't really as complex as it seems at first. And so let's just understand this. Okay, what is chapter 17 about? Chapter 17 is about the judgment of the great one world religion that's coming. It's going to come. It's going to be very powerful. It's going to be used as a part of the great one world government, great one world military and economic power. It's going to be used as a part of that, and then it's going to be discarded, but it's God that's going to cause that judgment to happen. So we just know this going in, and it says that right in verse 1. You see it? Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. 
So what the passage here is really chapter is about is this judgment. And so I'm calling the message the harlot and the, and the bride. Let's look. Uh, that is not this. this that is not. <laughs> yeah, it looks like my. Uh, that's not the right. It's too bad. That's not the right. You're going to have to be really sharp because I don't have slides for you because that's not the right, uh, not the right uh, program. So let me give you these, uh, let me give you these uh, simple things to think about. First of all, there is an anti-God. It's a growing anti-God religious system that's growing in the world right now. There's an anti-God religious system that has been implanted early on and is growing in the world right now. As a matter of fact, if you want to take notes and kind of track with this, I'm going to give you five points today. I don't normally say it that way, but if it's helpful to you to track with this to get it, five points, or at least as you listen, you can kind of think, well, he must be getting done. He's on four, right? So number one is this. There's this anti-God religious system that's growing in the world. In chapter one, it's, uh, chapter uh, 17 and verse 1, that's what it specifically says. If you skip to verse 15, it says this. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are, so there's a decoding here, they are the people's multitudes, nations, and tongues. Waters, great waters, are representing the people groups. So it's decoded in verse 15. You see, that's an example of symbolism in the Bible that's immediately kind of explained. Chapter 1 says, the harlot sitting on many waters. Chapter 17 and verse 1 says, the harlot is sitting on many waters. Verse 15 says, and the waters represent peoples and kingdoms. In other words, it's important to understand that what God is saying is that false religion takes hold in a little nomadic tribe in Genesis chapter 10, but it grows and it eventually includes all those who have rejected Christ that call themselves religious in any way. That's why in chapter uh, 17 and verse 5, this harlot is called Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and and mother of all the abominations on the earth. That's a pretty exclusive title right there. This prostitute, this harlot, is the false church. Any church, any church, any ism, any cult that doesn't teach salvation by grace through faith alone is a part of this great one world religion. This would include Protestant churches that don't any longer believe the Bible. This would include some Baptist churches that no longer believe the Bible. This would include the Roman Catholic Church that teaches that you have to work to be saved, and the Bible doesn't teach that. This includes the cults that come to your door. When it comes to the end of time, all of those who don't believe that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords and believe and teach in salvation by grace through faith alone will be a part of a great worldwide religious system. And the warning here is stay away from that system. And so there's an anti-God religious system. It's growing in the world. The second thing is this religious system is part of a a larger worldwide anti-God political system. And you see that. Look in chapter 18, going to the next chapter, and verse 3. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. The merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of luxury. Do you see that? You have political power. You have economic power. And what God is revealing through the angel to John, to the church, is is this. Prepare for the world to have a great world government. And prepare for the world to have... That will have a military arm, a political arm, it will have an economic arm, it will have a religious arm. That's why it's super important that we practice true biblical separation. Because there's going to come a time that's going to be practically very important. 
Now here's the third thing. The religious system appears to be good. It appears to do good, but it's demon-possessed and it's, it's determined to destroy God and his people. And look in uh, chapter 18, uh, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 17 and verses 4 through 6. The woman is arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, precious stones, pearls. She has a golden cup in her hand. That sounds good. It's the appearance of good. Listen to me. Listen to me. Almost all religion appears good, right? Almost all religion says nice things. People say, well, the, all the great religions of the world say, you know, be good to your brother and don't kill people and so forth. They have, and they, 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 they want the appearance of good. And the Bible says that Satan is going to masquerade as an angel of light. His ministers as angels of light. And this is exactly what's happening here. The religious system appears good, but notice that it's allied with the beast and the false prophet. Verse 4, it says, that golden cup that she has, it looks so good, what's it full of? abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. It doesn't say adultery, because this is not the bride of Christ. It doesn't commit adultery, because fornication. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints. Or, uh, verse, chapter, I'm sorry, verse 5 says she's called Mystery Babylon, great mother of harlots and abominations. So would this be good or bad? Yeah, bad. Abominations is a, is a big bad word in the Bible, right? It's, it's, so she's the mother of all false religion. She's the mother of all kinds of abominations, but she looks good. Notice that's true about her is that she's allied with the beast and a false prophet, and she appears good in verse 4. In verse 6, notice how she feels about you. She hates you. False religion is not your friend. False religion hates you. Verse 6, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints. Who is drunk with the blood of the saints? This mother of all harlots, of all abominations, false religion. Any religion that doesn't believe that Jesus is God, the Bible is true, salvation is by grace through faith, any religion that says anything else is going to be a part of this great one-world religious organization, if you will, and that organization will, is drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And John says, this was just shocking to me. John says, when I saw it, it just shocked me, it amazed me. And the angel kind of says, you shouldn't be surprised at this. That's kind of the part of the message to us. Don't be shocked that false religion is growing in our world. Don't be amazed that false religion is growing in our world. Don't be sucked into false religion. It's everywhere you look. And it's going to get worse. So now you've been warned, right? That's what it says. So the anti-God religious system is growing in the world. It's a part of a larger worldwide economic, political, military system it's, it's, it appears to be good, but it's really bad. And then, and then you have this decoding. You have a little bit of like... And what you get in chapter 17 and verses like 8 through 12, here's the best way to understand that. Think of those verses in terms of time. It's a little easy to get kind of confused. You've got heads and horns, and there's seven of these and ten of those, and one is and wasn't. It's coming back. Let's explain that. Okay, the, 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 the part that's grammatically kind of difficult to untangle is just simply saying, this is the one that we saw before in chapter 13 who was alive. He came out of the abyss. He was alive. Then it looked like he died. And then it looked like he rose again. And he's coming back and he's going to get tossed into hell. That's what it says. Remember that? Chapter 13, it says it very clearly. Compare chapter 17, chapter 13. You see it very clearly. This is a false Christ or an against Christ or an anti-Christ. And he appears, and the people are wowed by him because it looks like he died and rose again. And that's exactly what it says 
Those, in verse 8, it says, Those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. In other words, when they see the fake resurrection, many of them will be sucked into this false religion because they saw the fake resurrection. And so the beast will increase and the harlot will increase. The understanding of the heads in verse 8 and 9, it says, here's the, the, the mind which has wisdom. Seven heads are seven mountains on which the, the woman sits. This has been referred to before, and it will be referred to again. And there's a reference to kings and their jurisdictions, or the city with the seven mountains. So you have the, the king, the, this is a, the seven heads, a reference to the, the seven kings. And then it, it says in verse 10, there are also seven kings, and five have fallen, and one is, and the other is yet to come. So, so again, you, what you want to think about is the passage that has these kind of confusing references in it is primarily telling us, it's answering a when question. It's telling us a time question. When is this going to happen? Well, when we get close to it and we see these things unfold, it will be much easier for us to understand. That's why right now it seems really hard to decode. We're not there yet. When we get there, we'll go, oh, my brother-in-law he calls me the other night. It's a, it's, I think it was a Friday night. He calls me, and I'm on my throne. I mean, I'm in my recliner. And, and uh, he calls me, and he goes, are you doing anything? And I'm like, yeah, I'm really busy right now, but, but what, how can I help you? you know? And he says, man, i got a big favor to ask of you. And I'm like, okay, what's that? And he goes, he took a truck to the airport, and he was supposed to secure the truck and hide the keys and lock it up, and had a laptop in it. It was a very valuable truck. And sometimes in our area, I don't know if you know this or not, but if you leave your keys in your truck, somebody will steal it, take it downtown Detroit, chop it, weld it, you won't have your truck anymore, just so you know, all right? So I'm sure that happens in other great cities of America too. But anyway, it happens here. He calls me on the phone. He goes, I don't know what I did with those keys. I'm, I'm sure I didn't secure it. Would you go look for me? And then he says to me, he goes, just go to the airport. You take a right. You go up the ramp. You, get a, you go to the blue light. You take a left. You, you get a card. You go, to the, you go to the fourth level. You take a right. You go down that way a little bit, turn left, and it's on the right. I'm like, oh, okay. Because I know exactly where that is, right? I'm like, okay, when I got there, it made a lot of sense. When he was explaining it, I wanted to go, stop, just stop talking right now. Don't talk to me anymore. Okay, when I get there, tell me where the truck is. But don't talk to me right now because you're just confusing me, right? In, the, in Revelation, it's often that way. When you're really confused, you're going, wow, I'm not sure I understand. It's like, there will come a time when it will become very clear. And by the way, in case you're wondering, I got to the fourth deck on the blue parking lot, and there was a white truck, and the door was open and had been open for four and a half hours, and the keys were on the seat, and they were still there, right here in good old... Detroit, U.S. of A. Isn't that great? So, yeah, go ahead and clap for Detroit. Yeah, they didn't steal that truck. Uh, they, just because they didn't know it was there. They would have. You know that. Anyway, so the security at the airport must be really good because um, that's that. But anyway, when we get there, okay, so when you get to this passage, what it's saying is this is when you can expect this to happen. Okay, so you have, you have these uh, world empires that rise and fall. In particular, they are world empires that have to do with persecuting Israel. And these world empires rise and fall. You see other examples of this in the Bible. They're fascinating examples. Like if you look in Daniel, you see that, 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 that Nebuchadnezzar's image. And remember that has a golden head and so forth. And it goes down into the, and it has ten toes. And a lot of Bible scholars believe, and I'm with them, that those ten toes are, are symbolic of this revived expression of the Roman Empire. And then you have the ten... Here, if you, if you read carefully, the ten horns in verse 12... Are, the, are describing the same thing. In other words, political entities that will be in place during that time. So when you see we've come to the end of these world empires, and when you see that these ten nations come together and they are supporting this one world government, then you'll know this is the time when this 
harlot, this prostitute, this false church, is about to be judged by God. So the hills represent seven kings, a succession of world empires that have persecuted Israel. The scarlet animal, the beast that died, is the eighth king. He reigned before as a part of the Roman Empire. He reigns again as a part of the revived Roman Empire, and he's about to come to his doom. And the horns, in verse 12, the beast rise to power, coincides with the rise to power of these ten kings. So keep it real simple, the seven and the ten, okay? The seven are about world empires that are coming into this last time. And the ten are about political entities that are on the earth during that time, all together at the same time. And we're probably likely to really know it. The people that are here, I I plan not to be here, but the people that are here are likely to really know that. They're likely to see that clearly. And the the big thing you don't want to forget is what it says in verse 14, that when these make war with the Lamb, guess who wins? These make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. And I like this, for He is the Lord of lords, and He is the King of kings. Well, if you didn't get the rest of it, you should get that. Listen to me, young man. You're about to make your way in the world. Can I tell you something? He is the Lord of lords, and he is the king of kings. Young lady, you're about to make some important decisions in life. I want to help you with this. Get your Bible, read it, and if you don't understand the other stuff, understand this part. He is the Lord of lords, and he is the king of kings. His word is true. His way is right. He is the only way. Build your life on the Bible, God's Word, because he's, Jesus is coming back someday, Lord of lords and King of kings. That's helpful. Now, here's the fourth thing. Jesus will fully and finally defeat this false church. He does it in a unique way. He says that in verse 1. He says again in verse 16, And the ten horns which you saw, the ten horns are the ten political entities that are on the earth during that time, the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot make her desolate, naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. Not exactly bedtime reading, right? But what is it saying? It's saying that the beast, which is the, the, the will turn on the harlot. In other words, what, and, and by the way, what makes her do that? And destroy this harlot. So the false religious system that's growing, and it's so alluring, and it's so seductive, and it's so tempting, and it's so popular, is going to be crushed and won't even be there at the final judgment because God is actually going to inspire and put in the heart of the beast to destroy the harlot. That's what it says. God sovereignly does this. These make war with the lamb. The lamb overcomes them. Verse 15, they said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot says are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. The ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate, naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill this purpose, to be of one mind, to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And it won't take time to do it, but if we were to look at Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 9, if we look anywhere else in the Bible, what you have is a great statements of the sovereignty of God, that God is in control. So you are supposed to vote as a Christian. You're supposed to participate in the political process and be the salt and light. You're supposed to kind of have those kind of like arm wrestlings and you're supposed to think about that. But you're also supposed to not panic and you're not to put your trust in any presidential candidate or party because he is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords, and he will put it in the heart of evil men to do to other evil men what he chooses to do with evil men, and in the end he will come and reign with his loyal, chosen, faithful saints with him. 
So that's why we want to keep remembering that when it gets so frustrating, when you look at the political process in America or anywhere else in the world, and you see the growing godlessness and the growing uncivility in our time, it shouldn't throw us off. We should say, that's what my Bible says would happen. Now, there's something more I want to tell you, and it's my fifth and final point. It only took me a half hour to explain this. Kidding, yeah. But here it is. Jesus will cherish his bride forever in the new heaven and the new earth. So my wife says, I'm not supposed to tell you to say amen. But if I was going to tell you to say amen, that's where I would have said it, right there. So I'll say it again so that you can enjoy that. Like, okay, I'll say it in such a way that will be helpful to you. Okay, think about this. What's this chapter all about? This chapter is about a false religious system that God is going to judge, and he's going to inspire the beast to judge the false religious system in the end, and the lamb is going to be conquering at that time because he's the king of kings and the lord of lords, and he's bringing with him those who are the chosen and the faithful and the called and the chosen and the faithful. Did you get that? The saints are coming with Christ, and what are they called? They're called, chosen, and faithful. They're the ones whose names are written in the land before the foundation of the earth. Figure it out, folks. It's just in there, right? So here's the sovereign God. He has his bride. There's the harlot that's working against trying to seduce you today, right? Trying to mess you up this week. Trying to pull you into sin right now. Trying to get you on the team. And then there's Jesus, the lamb, who's going to conquer. He's going to come with the called and chosen and faithful who had been raptured before. He's going to come with the called and chosen and faithful. And then he's going to, eventually he's going to have the thousand year reign. Then he's going to have the judgment. He's going to renew the earth. And he's going to live there forever with them. I thought about that this week and I wrote it down. And I want to read it to you so I say it just right. Think about the lamb versus Satan. Think about Jesus versus Satan. Jesus wants to bless you. That's what he said. Satan wants to curse you. Jesus is your advocate. Satan is your accuser. Jesus wants to give you life eternal, abundant. Satan wants to damn you to hell forever. Jesus wants to favor you. Satan wants to abuse you. Think about this the next time you're tempted to sin and Satan wants to sink his talons in you deeper. And whatever that sin is, or lust or drunkenness or pride or that selfish streak or that anger or that little irritation or dishonesty or that self-righteous streak that you have, whatever it is, Satan is trying to get his grip on you. Jesus wants to gift you. Satan wants to rob you. Jesus wants to cherish you. Satan wants to torment you. Jesus wants to delight you. Satan wants to plunge you into discouragement, despair, depression. Satan wants you to be disloyal to Jesus. Notice what his bride is called. They're called called, chosen, and what? Faithful. What a quality in a wife. Faithful. Man, you can put up a lot of other things, but she's going to be faithful. Isn't that the premium quality in a wife? She's faithful. In a bride... That's faithful. We're the bride of Christ. He's saying, be faithful. You'll be glad you did someday. Satan wants you to be disloyal. He wants to pull you into spiritual adultery. He has a sophisticated world system all lined up to seduce you and to destroy you. Satan wants to sink his dark talons of temptation into you, and he gets you in bondage to sin. But you want to devote yourself to faithfulness to Christ. So I, I, I have to admit, I watch when calls the heart. Probably I lose my man card for this. <laughs> I watch it. It's true. There's this, there's this guy named Jack, striking, handsome, young Christian man, and he's a royal Canadian mounted policeman. Rides a horse and 
takes care of business, and he's just he's got a dog. He's just a wonderful guy. He's handsome. Did I say that already? Royal Canadian Mounted Policeman, Jack. And, of course, in a little village of Hope Valley, there's also a lovely young lady who teaches school, and she also is a devout Christian and just, just sicklingly, wonderfully sweet and nice all the time. Her name's Elizabeth, Jack and Elizabeth. For seasons now, we've been trying to get Jack and Elizabeth married. It's taken forever. They're still not married. Jack and Elizabeth, they get close, they move away, they have things that come in, the plot twists. Here comes the spoiler. In the season finale, Jack takes Elizabeth up on a hill. Beautiful, beautiful hill. It's so stunning. It's gorgeous. You just look out over blue mountain after blue mountain after blue mountain. And then Jack looks at Elizabeth and he's holding her and he says, do you like it? And she says, I love it. It's beautiful. And he says, it's mine. I bought it. And I am going to build you a house right here. And we're going to raise our kids right here. Friend, listen to me. You are the bride of Christ. He's planning a beautiful future for you. Every time you're tempted to sin, it's like you're spitting in his face. It's like you're being unfaithful, disloyal to him. Let's not do that. Let's not go there. Let's walk into his arms over again. Let's let him love us. Let's live pure and holy and godly lives until the king comes back and he gathers his bride to himself and we live with him forever. Stand up and we're going to sing and pray before we go home.